Turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. If you need a Bible this morning, there's some uh, Bibles on the table right behind the pole in the center. Please feel free to grab one if you don't have one available this morning. So last week we uh, went partway through this chapter, and we were looking at Paul as he's trying to make his way to uh, Jerusalem, trying to get there before uh, the Passover, uh, excuse me, before Pentecost. And as he's on his way, uh, he stops and encounters these uh, elders of the church at Ephesus. He has them come out and meet him on the beach at this place called Miletus. And so uh, this chapter is sort of that story of what happens in that encounter uh, of Paul with these, these men, these leaders from the, the Ephesian church. So we had um, come as far as verse 24, but this morning I'd like to back up to verse 17 to read just to get context. So we'll have that up on the screen for you here in just a moment. There we go. And so we'll read down to verse 38 together. So Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, uh, to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years... I did not cease to warn uh, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now brethren I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Lord, by your spirit, would you speak to us? As we study these things, as we see the heart of Paul, and not just Paul, but the heart of a shepherd exposed. And we see here how shepherds should be. And Lord, this passage becomes a lesson for us, for all leaders, of how we should be toward you and toward your flock. The understanding and the attitude we should have. And so we trust that you will speak and instruct us in these things. And maybe bring healing, Lord. For we know that, sadly and grievously, many shepherds have hurt the flock. And so this morning, would you use this time, perhaps, Lord, as a time of healing, a time of restoration, a time of forgiveness for any of those things that may have happened in the past. And we pray for you to heal us, Lord. Lord, we all need healing. We all have issues. We all have stuff. And God, we ask you this morning that you would heal your servants. Bring restoration, bring peace, Lord. Bring resolution. Put things to rest that may not have an an end or a solution. They may never be worked out on this side of heaven. But you can just put your hand over it and just heal that wound. Would you do that this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, as he called these elders to the church, you get that sense as we go through this here, as he's sharing his heart with them, that he wanted them to know, as we talked about last week, just by brief review, he wanted them to understand that his life was an example and that in many respects, God had intended his life would be an example. And that as he recalled how he lived among them, that they were to recall those things, the things he said, the way he lived, his attitude. In other words, everything he said and did was on display. And of course, we reviewed how later on he had written to the Corinthian church and to other believers saying, you know, imitate me and then imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then saying things like, I've learned to die daily. You know, heeding the words of the Lord Jesus that if you want to follow him, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And, and Paul was laying down before them that his life was this kind of an example. But as we were considering that last week, we also reviewed the fact that Paul was not just saying that his life was an example and none of the rest of us have to be an example. On the contrary, Paul was saying really that we are all examples. We are examples in our home, in school, in our workplace, the places where we travel, uh, getting on a plane or getting on the freeway or going to the supermarket or the pharmacy, wherever you find yourself going, we're always an example. You may think, well, those people don't know me. Maybe not, but they should know Jesus. And and so God wants to use us in that way. And so Paul was saying, you know, these are the things I did. Verse 19, I served the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. You watched me suffer. You watched me deal with 
false things and unjust things that were said about me and the way I was treated and the plotting and the trying to kill me and to discredit my words and to discredit my ministry. And he says, I kept nothing back that was helpful. I love that, and I think that we would all like to be that way, but you know what Paul's talking about here is with respect to the Word of God and the truth. Have you ever had someone say something to you that you didn't want to hear? Do you understand that when we talk about the Bible, the Word of God, and a person hopefully delivering by the Spirit the words of the Lord to us, that we're going to be challenged? Things are going to be said to us that we don't want to hear. Sometimes we ask questions, you know, of people, of people we're, we're good friends with. You know, hey, you know, at least I do this. I don't know if anybody else does this because I'm neurotic. But, you know, hey, uh, do you see anything in my life that is a problem? You know, did, did I, you know, I've said so many times to Pastor Mitch, maybe after an interaction with someone, hey, how did that go? Uh, tell me, did I... Did I represent the Lord well? Did I say something inappropriate? It just felt weird when that conversation ended. And, you know, there's an old saying, don't ask a question that you don't want to know the answer to. So we need to hear the truth, don't we? We need to hear it if we've messed up. We need to hear it if we, if we blew it. Because then, you know what we need to do? We have to humble ourselves first before God to ask for his forgiveness, how we might have hurt a brother or sister or how we might have misrepresented him to people. But also to go back to that person or those people and ask for their forgiveness. You see, we need to humble ourselves. We, we can't just preach humility. We have to live humility. We have to be humble. James and Peter both talked about this. They said, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. So often we want to repair something. We want to, re- want to repair our reputation, but we need to leave that in God's hands. But we need to do the right thing and in humility ask for forgiveness when those things are pointed out about our lives. So I held back nothing that was helpful. I proclaimed it to you. I taught it publicly from house to house. I don't think Paul used any of that as a, point of insensitivity. He wasn't brutal with the truth. He just shared the truth. He spoke the truth in love. And if someone had a problem with it, I imagine this man would sit down with you face to face, look you in the eye and say, tell me what your struggle is. Let me help you with it. And he said, now I I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me there. And again, last week we looked at this. We looked at the issue of the uncertainty of the future not knowing what lies ahead. Uh, I got to tell you, I'm struggling with this right now in our own lives. You know, Virginia just had this surgery on her shoulder. She can't do anything with Rebecca. Everything falls to me. And we went to the uh, 10-day post-surgical follow-up on Friday. And as we're sitting there uh, talking to the PA, we have an appointment with the doctor in two weeks, which is the one month. You know, we were just talking with him and he said, so uh, I don't know you folks, why don't you tell me, you know, what you do speaking to my wife? And she was describing the care of my my daughter. He's like, oh, whoa, whoa, back up. You can't do anything for six months. I don't want you doing anything for six months, right? This, This is, get the calendar out and count. That's like March, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a lot going on here, right? Uh, my life has dramatically changed in the last 10 days, personally. 
So I look at these things, and we know that, and I'm not complaining, by the way, I'm just saying, you know, these, these things happen in our lives, and all of a sudden, in a second, in, in a day, our lives have changed, our priorities have changed. And we have to say, okay, Lord, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get through this? How's it going to go? What's it going to look like? And so Paul is saying, I don't know what's going to happen when I get there, except that the Spirit is testifying in every city, every place I go, that chains and tribulations await me. When we get into chapter 21 and 22, as Paul's getting in Jerusalem, we're going to see his life change dramatically. And then he said in verse 24, but none of these things move me, and that's where we focused last week. Nor do I count my life dear to myself. In other words, it doesn't matter that the future is uncertain. It doesn't matter that I might be put in chains when I get to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter that once again I might go through beatings and, and be put in jail. These things don't move me. Why? Because I, I know my Lord. I know what he's called me to do. I know the gifts that he's given me. I know the mission that he's given me. And I can't give up, I can't, I can't turn my back on that just because a little discomfort might be in my future. In fact, maybe I'll get to heaven sooner. Paul, when he wrote to the Philippian church there in chapter 1, you know, he, he's there talking about people who are <clears throat> sharing the gospel out of envy and strife and all of that, and people are actually getting saved. And he's like, hey, if God's using sinful and perfect vessels to bring the gospel to people and they're getting saved and praise God. But he's, then a little bit later in, in Philippians chapter one, he says, you know, <clears throat> I'm just tired. I just want to go home and be with the Lord. I've suffered, but I kind of get the sense the Lord's telling me he wants me to stick around a little longer. It's more needful for you if I stay around, but I'd much rather depart from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so Paul has just learned, you know, to submit <clears throat> to the Lord. I don't, Count my life dear to myself, and of course that's the issue most of us do. Count our lives dear to ourselves more so than having given our lives over to the Lord. Lord, I've given my life to you. Whatever you want to do with it is up to you. However you want to direct my path, that's in your purview, not mine. And if you decide to close this door and open this one and force me to go that way instead of this way, then I will do that and I will do so gladly and joyfully following you. None of these things move me. They won't deter me from what I know God has called me to do. And we, we explored a little bit last week. What has God called you to do? Because every single believer, I believe, as we have been saved, has been giving a, a purpose. God has given us gifts. And he's gifted us not for our benefit, but for his and for the benefit of his church. When you read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, you see that he says the gifts are for the edification and the fulfillment of the body of Christ. And that those gifts God has given us are always for the church, capital C. So when we hold back our gifts or we refuse to sort of find out what our giftings are that God has given to us, we're depriving the church of something that God wants to do in and through us in the lives of other people. And he wants to use us. None of these things move me. I, I don't count my life dear to myself. I want to finish my race with joy. Paul talked about his race so often, didn't he? As you read his epistles. Run your race with joy. Finish your race. Get to the finish line. Now, now we ought to take care of ourselves. I, I, I believe in that. But I also believe, 
as the saying goes, tis only one life, twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Uh, my pastor, the man who fan- founded this church, is fond of saying, you can rest when you get to heaven. So uh, until we fall into the arms of Jesus, even if we have somebody drag us across the finish line, until we're there, we're not done. And I want to finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And there's the key, isn't it? We shouldn't just be busy doing stuff because there's needs. We need to know who we are in Christ. We need to know how he's gifted us. We need to know, you see, the, the, the calling of God in terms of ministry and service always fits with the giftings that he's given us. And he says, the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he says here in verse 25, and indeed now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. I imagine that hit them like a ton of bricks. Paul had spent three years there in the Ephesian church. Remember he spent usually a few days to a week or a few weeks even uh, with different churches as God was using him as he went through and he was planting and, and ministering to these churches. Uh, most of them a few days to a week, then uh, in Thessalonica three weeks, then he gets to Corinth, it's 18 months, then he gets to Ephesus, and in chapter 19 we had learned that he had been there for two years now. We're here in chapter 20 as he's speaking to them, remembering that I was with you for three years. And he says, therefore I testify to you this day, now you get the sense as you read this, at least I do, It's like Paul is standing up before a court and he's making a proclamation and this is becoming a legal record and the stenographer is there taking it down. And he's saying this to them because he wants this to become, in a sense, etched into their brain. That after he's gone, they can play this tape back. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. And if you stop there, you might say, well... What does that mean? And how can anyone say that? But don't stop there because it's the middle of the sentence. Verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Remember while Paul was there, chapter 19, he had been ministering in Ephesus. When he first got there, he bumped into a group of 12 disciples and he saw that something was missing from their lives and he asked them if they had had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and they hadn't. So he ministered to them and they received the Spirit and he baptized them and they were baptized in the Spirit. And then there was already believers there. Ephesus was a megalopolis of a, of a city. And so there were no doubt believers all over that city. And so as Paul was ministering there, going into the synagogues, remember there was a period of time he ministered. This is all in chapter 19. And as he was ministering, the the Jews rose up against him. And finally, it says he withdrew the disciples aside, took them to the school of Tyrannus, taught them there for two years. Remember that culture, the middle of the day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., we're told, historically from that city, that was their siesta, their middle of the day because of the heat. Remember, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, right square in the middle of of what we call the Middle East today. So for five hours a day, Paul would teach. Now remember, he got up in the morning, he went to work, he worked until 11, then they all went over to the school of Tyrannus, he taught them six days a week, five hours a day, you do the math, it's a ton of instruction for two years. 
And then he comes here and he says this to them. Remember, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. What do you think Paul taught them? He taught them the entirety of the Old Testament and what God was doing and writing as God was giving revelation into what we now call the New Testament. So for for two years he did that and he's saying here, that, that I did not shun to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That's an important word, shun. I didn't skip something that was hard. I didn't skip something that was difficult. I didn't skip something that was potentially boring. I declared the whole counsel of God. Or if we put it in a modern day vernacular, I taught you the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Now, how many pastors do you think in this country can actually say that? That I've given you the whole Bible. I didn't skip anything because it was unpleasant. One commentator said many preachers today simply use the Bible or a Bible text as a launching pad and then go on to say whatever it is they want to say, whatever they think the people want to hear. Others throw in Bible quotations to illustrate their points or to illustrate their stories. Yet the real calling of a preacher is to simply let the Bible speak for itself and let it declare its own power. Taking Paul's testimony at full strength, we must say that those preachers who deliberately fail to declare the whole counsel of God are guilty of the blood of all men. The preacher that preaches what his audience wants to hear and not the whole counsel of God hurts both his audience and himself. You see, anyone who would aspire to the position of being a Bible teacher, a pastor, a preacher, whatever you might want to call it, if they aren't teaching, and God help us, if we aren't teaching the entirety of the scriptures, then what are we doing? What are we doing? I was confronted with this reality long ago that it's, people don't want to hear my opinions. If you want to hear somebody's opinion on something, turn on the TV. What people need, what they want, is the Word of God. And that is what we must give them. And so as he's standing there before them, he says... I've done this. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I've done what God wanted me to do. And and how crazy is it to think of the fact that one day when, when we stand before God, especially those who have been given the ministry of the word, to stand before the Lord and to say, well, I, I wasn't faithful with your word. I mean, that, that's going to be hard. So let's not do that, right? Let's, let's, let's give people the word of God. And he says in verse 28, therefore, this is where we want to spend our time, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now there's several things here we need to take note of. First of all, take heed to yourselves. So he's saying to them as leaders, as elders, as leaders of the church, you take heed to yourselves. You see, they couldn't really take heed to the church unless or until they had been taking heed to themselves. What does all that mean? It means watch your life. 
Watch your walk with the Lord. Watch your ministry. Take care of it. Do the right thing. Be who you're supposed to be before the Lord. So take heed to yourselves. And then he says, and to all the flock. And really the calling of a shepherd, and the word shepherd uh, out of the New Testament, we're going to look at some of these passages in a moment. The word shepherd is the word used for pastor. So take heed to yourselves. We all have to do that. Not just these leaders that he's talking to, not just pastors, but all of us, we have to take heed to ourselves. And then, in the case of these shepherds and leaders and to all the flock, you see a shepherd by definition does what? He takes care of the flock. Now, if he's a shepherd of, of sheep, literally, of, has, has farm animals, and you take care of those farm animals, what do you do? You feed them. You nurture them. You take care of them in every way. If they get injured, you bandage their wound. You provide the food. You protect them from predators. So you take care of the flock. You serve the flock. You look out for the flock. And he says, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, Paul was not saying, remember when we had that election in the church and you were the guys who were voted for as the most likely to succeed as leaders? No, that doesn't happen, right? Some churches do this, don't they? Notice what he says, and I believe this is a principle Paul lays down here and the Holy Spirit lays down here, in my opinion, for the entirety of the New Testament. That when leaders are appointed in a church, when someone is called to ministry, whether it's a local church or the church at large, it's the Holy Spirit who's doing the appointing. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It doesn't mean that someone just stands up, raises their hand and say, hey, the Holy Spirit appointed me. Because we're also going to see, as we look at some of these other passages that talk about leadership, is that others must understand, they must recognize, they must see, hey, the Spirit is working in in Fred's life over here and we think God is raising him up to be an elder or a pastor. So there's a, there's a witness that comes together from other people. It's not just someone, you know, anybody can raise their hand and say, oh, God spoke to me, I'm a leader. He says, no, the Holy Spirit made you overseers. And I believe what he's saying here is that others will see this, others will acknowledge this. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Whose church is it? The church of God Notice which he purchased with his own blood. So at best, pastors and leaders have been given a trust. We've been given a responsibility. It's as if the Lord Jesus says, this is my bride, this is my church. While I'm gone, you take care of her. You love her, you feed her. Go look at Ephesians 5. We don't have time to go into all these passages this morning. Yes, there's a model there for marriage, but Jesus says, I mean, Paul said this is also a model between Christ and his church. And so that picture given to us in Ephesians 5 is not just a picture between husband and wife and what we can all do to sort of better encourage our marriage relationships, but it's also a picture of a shepherd, a pastor in his relationship to his church. And we are under shepherds. Jesus is the great shepherd. He is appointed by his Holy Spirit under shepherds who are to take care of the church. So let's, let's go through this. Let's look at how do we do this here. Notice 
Uh, If you want to turn, you're welcome to. But in John chapter 10, Jesus himself spoke about himself as the good shepherd. But in that, he gives us an example. So in John 10, verse 7, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So Jesus is the good shepherd. We can never forget that. We don't have the right as pastors and leaders to do what we want and say what we want to say because it's his bride, it's his church, it's, it's, it's his purchased possession. So he's the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he, is, he who is not the shepherd, the one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. I believe this imagery is a part of what Paul had in mind as he's saying to them, and he's going to go on and say to them in just a moment, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. So wolves from the outside. And then he said, even from within the church, from your own ranks, people are going to rise up and do vicious things and draw away people after themselves. So we have to ground ourselves in in what Jesus said. Jesus is the good shepherd. The hireling, that's someone who is not really the shepherd. He's not called as a shepherd. Uh, He's just a person who comes in as a hired gun. Hey, uh, you're here nine to five. You punch the clock. You don't really care. You're not watching the flock 24-7. And when danger comes, you flee because you, you care about your own life more than you care about the life of the flock. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, referring to Jews now of Gentiles. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and they will be one flock and one shepherd. You see, a person who's appointed or called to be a shepherd, we have to have John 10 at the center of what we do. Whose sheep are there? They're Jesus' sheep. Whose church is it? It's Jesus' church. What's my responsibility? To help make sure people see the shepherd. I point them to Jesus. I point them to his word. I don't point anybody to me or to the leadership of the church. I point people to Jesus. I don't point people to another great teacher. I point people to Jesus. So the job, the first and and most highest calling of any shepherd is to shine the light on Jesus. So in John 21, you may remember this interaction between Peter and Jesus But in this interaction, really, Jesus is restoring Peter. Remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times leading up to the crucifixion. And here on the the, the beach of of the shore of, of Lake Galilee in John 21, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Jesus was dialing Peter in. He was pointing him to the fact that this is why I've prepared you. This is what I've, I've done for you. I've brought you to this point, Peter, so that you can learn you are here to take care of my flock. I'm leaving. And I'm leaving people behind. People, flawed people, shepherds. But they are here to point people to me. And you, and all shepherds, I believe he's saying, you should feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. That's your job. We've all seen those funny stories, right, of uh, you know, some, a picture where something's really messed up and the caption is always like, you had one job, <laughs> right? And it's just something messed up. The, the, the hinge is on the wrong side of the door, the, the knob's up here instead of down here where you can reach it. But here, this picture that Jesus gives us, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. In Hebrews chapter 13, listen to this, uh, verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. We see even there in this benediction in the book of Hebrews, pointing of the shepherds to the fact that we remind people who Jesus is, we point people to Jesus, that Jesus would make you complete in every good work to do his will. That's why we teach the word of God. That's why we have all these Bible studies, is to do those things, and that he may be able to work in people's lives. That's the whole point. That's the whole purpose. Peter, later in 1 Peter chapter 5 Verse 1, now this is no doubt what was burned into Peter's brain in that encounter in John chapter 21. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, notice what Peter says. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Listen to the charge he gives to the people he's writing to. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. This sounds like everything Paul said, right? And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. It's from this passage of Scripture, you may hear people say, and I agree with them, that we sort of get this concept of those people who are appointed or raised up as shepherds over the flock really are under-shepherds to the, the chief shepherd. You see, we serve him and we serve his bride, his flock. And so what everything that Peter is saying here that he no doubt heard from Jesus, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, that's what Paul's telling these Ephesian elders, serving as overseers, that's what Peter's tell, excuse me, Paul is telling them, not by compulsion but willingly. In other words, the call, uh, the answering of, of what God has called us to do is, is done willingly. And it's always better if you do something willingly than if you're forced to do it, right? 
Don't you know? I mean, I don't know about you. But when I'm forced to do something, I usually do it begrudgingly. I usually have a little bit of a snippy attitude. Well, you know, who are you, Mr. High and Mighty, telling me what to do? You know, right? Anybody ever mumble those words in your head? But Jesus, what has he called us to do? To love the sheep, to feed the sheep, to tend the sheep, to protect the sheep. I had meant to put this in my notes, but forgot, but we're going to do it anyway. Go over to Psalm 23. Let's just connect the dots here this morning. Blow your mind. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What's the title of this psalm? The Lord, the shepherd of his people. What are shepherds supposed to do? Point people to that shepherd, to make that their experience. So when Peter, coming back to 1 Peter 5, is talking here about shepherding, uh, there's different words used here. We'll go through them briefly, but uh, the word shepherd is poimano or poimen, which means to feed or to shepherd or to tend. And it's the word that we derive the word pastor from. Then there's the word bishop, and then there's the word elder. So there's presbyters and episkopos. Sounds familiar, right? Presbyterian church, Episcopal church. When you study these words and you look up their definitions and you look at how they're used throughout the New Testament, they all mean something slightly different, but the general consensus of almost everybody I've ever read for many years is that these words are pretty much synonymous with one another in that there are overseers, there are elders, there are bishops, and there are poimen. Poimen seems to be different in that it is the shepherd or one who is called to feed the flock, but the elders and the overseers are those who were there to help, to come alongside, to oversee the church. And I don't believe that the pictures that I see in the New Testament ever indicate that there's only one, but that there should be a multiplicity of leaders or of elders in any church. And I believe God has that there for the protection of the church, for the protection of the person you know, called to be the, the shepherd or the, the shepherds, you know, it could be plural, it can be many, Right? but that there should be a plurality of leadership and that we come together. Notice back what Paul said in in, uh, Acts chapter 20, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That was a plurality as he spoke there, speaking to that group of men. God called all y'all to do it, right? Just, I gotta throw in my North Carolina thing every now and then. And that's for the protection of the body. It's for the protection of the shepherd. So that we can also labor together. When we, when we yoke a bunch of oxen together, we have greater strength. We have more power. So we're called to shepherd the flock of God. A shepherd shepherds. He leads. 
He never drives the flock. Cattle are driven. Sheep are led. And how do we carry this out? We do so faithfully. Notice that, you know, just turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I will just read through this briefly, but this is where the qualifications for one who would be an elder in the church are listed out for us. If, uh, 1 Timothy 3.1, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Let's just stop right there at verse 1. There's two words there uh, for desire. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. In English, it's the same word, but in Greek, it's two different words. If a man desires the position of a bishop, that word is actually a verb, and it means to stretch oneself out in order to touch or to grasp something, to reach or to seek after. So what that's saying is that there's a desire And I would say it this way, that God has put a desire in that man's heart to reach out, to desire that position of being a bishop, to desire serving the Lord in that way, to be an overseer of the flock because he cares for people. That second word, it says he desires a good work, is actually a word that indicates an inward passionate longing. So there's an outward and an inward. There's this inward longing that's reflected in an outward longing. There's an inward desire to serve God and an inward desire to want to see people do well and to feed them and to to care for them. But then that manifests itself in reaching out to say, how can I serve? And this is where the, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers comes into play. Those who are in leadership always have their eyes open looking for those other people whom God might be putting his spirit upon, raising them up to a position of leadership. See, we're not here to say, okay, we're all set, we got our team, don't need any other people. God might want to bring more people. It doesn't matter. The team is complete when God says the team is complete. So we have our eyes open, we're praying, and, and we're constantly praying, we're constantly looking. And you know where we're looking? We're not just looking out across the, the body. We're looking in those Bible studies. We're looking for those people who are faithful, who are, who are coming and saying, man, I want to know more about God's word. And as you're there studying God's word together, what's happening? God's stirring up in their heart. God's doing a work in their heart. And then you begin to see, they begin to show tendencies. They begin to show up early. They begin to say, hey, is there something I can do to help? How can I get involved? Not because they were recruited, but because God's done a work in their heart. And so as we read those other qualifications, then a bishop, an elder, must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And we go through this here. These are all qualifications of what the person's life must look like. And one of the the things that often happens as we read these passages and look at the qualifications, people disqualify themselves saying, but I'm not perfect. Guess what? Nobody's perfect. On this side of heaven, until we meet Jesus and stand face to face, and there is a redemption, a co-redemption of the body, married with the redemption of the soul, until that point, nobody will be perfect. So God doesn't have any perfect leaders, but he does have qualified leaders. And that means that our lives meet a certain standard, and we're moving in in a direction, and, you know, yes, our lives look like this. Hopefully our lives are in order like this. And this is why we have to be open and 
you know, circumspect and allow people to come and point out things in our lives if they see things that they feel are not accurate or appropriate or not in keeping with this. And maybe we need to take a step back from time to time and do that take heed to yourselves part that he talked about. And examine and take a look. I thought it might be helpful and I'll just do this here for a moment. I remember when this process started for me, I was in college, I had just come back to the Lord. And I was involved with a group of guys and there was a number of guys who were sort of leaders. There was no like one clear leader, but we were meeting uh, for Bible study. And of course, in college, you know, you have a busy schedule, classes, you know, all day and that kind of thing. So we, uh, back in those days, we met at McDonald's at 6.30 or 7 in the morning and we'd all go grab our coffee and cram into a booth at the end of the restaurant. And that's where we were studying together. And in fact, one of the guys brought this book by a guy named Gene Getz called The Measure of a Man. It's out on our shelf out there. Uh, there's another book called Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders, and we read these books together. Not knowing, I mean, this guy just said, we should read these books. These are books that leaders read, so we should read them. And so we did. And guess what those books do? They exposit the scriptures. They take them apart. The Measure of a Man is an exposition of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 on the qualifications of elders and deacons. Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sanders is looking at what's in the heart and the the qualifications of a man who seeks after God. And then the passion for the scriptures and then wanting to see people walk in God's ways. These were things that God began to do in my heart all the way back in college. Wanting to understand what his word says and understand how to apply it. And then going to the on-campus meetings and then we met on Thursday nights in those days and then come on a Thursday night and like, hey, where's, where's so-and-so and where's so-and-so? We need to go find them. Are they okay? Or maybe they're just studying for an exam or did they drift away or did something happen? Uh, not because we're nosy, but because we care about people. You see, ministry is about people. It's for and unto the Lord. And so caring about these things. And then he says in verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And these are people coming in from the outside. And in a sense, as a shepherd, if you take the analogy and think, okay, I'm a shepherd, I've got my field or my pen, and there's my flock, you can see the predator coming. You can see the wolf coming. And so in a sense, that's a little bit easier. Now you've got to fend off that wolf. You've got to defend yourself and the flock against that wolf. But when he comes to the next one in verse 30, and also among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. I'm sure this had to be just as shocking to them as what Paul said when he says, you're going to see my face no more. From among you, some of you guys sitting here today listening to my voice. Now this reminds me of what Jesus did at the Last Supper. I tell you, among you, one of you is a betrayer. And the guy, they were, what? Is it me, Lord? Remember that scenario? And it turned out to be Judas. And they didn't realize until later, of course, that it was Judas. And now uh, Paul's saying here to these Ephesian elders, among you, some of you will rise up speaking perverse things. What happens when these kinds of things happen? Either people drift from the word of God, or they somehow become puffed up with pride and think that all of a sudden, you know, I'm 
I'm Mr. Whoever, and I, I've got my own revelation from God outside of his word that he's spoken to me that I'm going to now speak and lead people off. And you know what we need to do? We need to start rolling in the aisles and barking in the spirit. And that, that's where all this stuff comes from. And it's the, it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I think quite honestly, while it could be any one of those things, so often, uh, you know, I think Satan's greatest work is if he can divide the church. And if he can convince someone to rise up and to begin to speak perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves, there's a key. They want their own following. They want people to follow them. And what's the call of a shepherd? To, to help people follow Jesus. You see, if we're all committed to that, if we, if we had four shepherds here, and if we were all committed to following Jesus, and we're all committed to that one purpose of just shining the light on Him and making Jesus great, and pointing people to Him, we're in a good place. But if one all of a sudden decides, you know, I think we need to start reading the Book of Mormon, or whatever else they think of, and they start to draw away people after themselves. You see, anytime we draw away, and you could fill in the blank with whatever, to draw away is to take the focus away from Jesus Christ. And we just don't want to do that. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Notice what Paul's saying here. This is his example. It was a long-term care for three years. You know, we're not just in this for a sprint. We're here for the long haul. Uh, For three years, uh, I did not cease. It was a constant care. It was something he did every day over and over and over. And I did not cease to warn you. It was a watchful care. He was watching, not because he wanted to be nosy, but because he cared about people. And it was a universal care. I did not cease to warn everyone. He didn't minister to a certain group of people only. He ministered to everybody. And it was a heartfelt care. It was a care with tears. I mean, not just his heart, but his soul as a shepherd was poured into the care of this flock. Remember, that was my example. So now, brethren, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Don't minimize the word of his grace. That is the power of God. His word and his word is the word of grace. You know, the the New Testament gospel is the gospel of grace. And let's reground and remind ourselves this morning what grace is. It's been said many ways, God's riches at Christ's expense. God giving you what you do not deserve. God giving you what you do not deserve. Now think about everything that God has given you that you do not deserve. And and let's kind of throw mercy in the mix. I think grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding that which we we deserve. Grace and mercy. So what has God given us? Forgiveness. Did anybody deserve forgiveness? No. He's given us peace. Peace with God. He's given us a new start, a fresh start with God the Father. 
And we are told as we read the scriptures that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That means that not only has it washed it away, but there's the word atonement. We've probably all heard that word. The word atonement means to cover. So Jesus has become our atonement. And our sins have become covered. And there's this picture in Isaiah that says, though our sins were as scarlet, they they were made white as snow. What did God do? It's it's as if he put on his rose-colored glasses and he can no longer see the, the blood of our sin. He now sees us as white as snow. We've been forgiven. That's why we sang that song, I am who you say I am. I'm forgiven, I'm clean. You may say, I don't feel that way. Read the word. Let the word of his grace build you up. The word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And we join the great throng of all the saints throughout all of history, history past, history present, and history future, where we will stand before the throne of God on the same equal basis, on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And we are forgiven. Paul goes on as he closes this out. I've coveted no one's gold or silver or apparel. Now this is something every shepherd, every pastor ought to be able to say. I I do not covet money. If you're in it for the money, you should definitely not be a pastor. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. Paul looked at it and he said, we're going to work. We're going we're gonna to provide for ourselves. We're not going to be a burden on other people. And we're not going to covet. We're going to make that uh, example real. And we want to make sure that those who are around us, who are serving on our team, that we're providing for them also. So Paul had this mentality that maybe this person is not as productive or not as industrious, but I'm going to provide for them as well. Now, some of us might take the attitude of giving them the left foot of fellowship and say, hey, man, get to work. Not Paul. He says, you know what? We provided for our necessities and for those who were with me. Now, later in the New Testament, Paul also talks about that a laborer is worthy of his wage. That as an ox plows, an ox ought to be able to eat of the grain that is threshing. Certainly, you can, you know, spiritual leaders can receive a, a salary from the church. There's not a problem with that. But he's certainly getting to the, the issue of the attitude, the attitude of the shepherd, the attitude of the pastor. And then he said in verse 35, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. I want you to do what I've done. Support those who are in need and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you look this verse up, you won't find it in the Bible. Why? Because at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus said, or rather, John said of Jesus, he says, and I suppose that if everything that Jesus said were written down, it would fill the volumes in the whole world. So there's so much, unfortunately, that we don't have that Jesus said that's written down. But obviously, this was something that was repeated among the disciples that Jesus said. Jesus said this is more blessed to give than to receive. And you know what? As pastors and as churches that we shepherd, And as people who are believers in Jesus Christ, this ought to be our motto.
Because you know what? We cannot outgive God. The church ought to not only be a safe place and a happy place, but it also, also ought to be a blessed place where we are giving. Now we're getting, giving not just to missionaries, but if, it, if we hear of anyone among the flock who's going through a tough time, if we can help, we come alongside and help, whether that be personally or as a church. And I think that's something that I've seen over the years with this body. God has blessed this body with people who have a heart and an attitude and a mind to give. Remember this. If you want a plaque, if you want to make a t-shirt, here's a good one, right? It's more blessed to give than to receive Jesus. That's a good shirt to wear. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, not just because he loved them, because this is what a shepherd does. He prays with people. He knew their hearts were broken. He knew that the things he had just shared with them was very heavy. And he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And then as they finished, they said, amen. They all wept freely. They fell on Paul's neck. They kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. What a picture. I think Acts chapter 20, especially this last portion here, is a picture that you ought to put alongside John 21, where Jesus restored Peter. And you say, this, this is... This is what a shepherd looks like. This, this is how a shepherd restores somebody. This is how a shepherd encourages people. This is what a shepherd's job description is. And, and Paul is giving them an example. He's saying, look, this was my example to you. If you do what I did, you'll do well. What we've seen here is the heart of a shepherd. And I think what God has given us in this passage is not just, you know, for me, and for shepherds, and for leaders, for bishops, for elders, all of that. But also, this is something we look at when we, you know, are are church shopping. Is this the kind of leader that I'm going to participate with? And if that leader is not like this, I need to keep looking till I find a church that has a leader that looks like this. Because this is what a shepherd is. This is what shepherds do. You can wear a shepherd, a suit rather, you can have a nice haircut and all that. But do you love people? Will you roll up your sleeves and get down beside them? Will you pray with them? Will you go cut their grass if they're sick? Will you get involved in the lives of people? That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd cares for the sheep. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for what you've spoken to us. And Lord, I pray first and foremost, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know the great shepherd, then that this hopefully would be just the time where the light has been shown upon you, Jesus, and that they would want to know that kind of shepherd in their own lives, and that they would give their hearts to you this morning and bend the knee and and believe and receive and come to that saving faith in Christ. And the way you do that is simply by speaking to him and asking him in. By saying, Lord, I want you, please come into my life right now. And Lord, for those of us this morning who crave more of you, who crave this kind of relationship, then Lord, would you do that for us this morning? Lord, as as we hopefully have pointed others to you, 
looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, abiding in Christ. Lord, this morning, that's what we desire. And I pray that every person walking away from this time will have a greater desire to go deeper and to go further and to know you more. And Lord, perhaps you've put it in the hearts of some this morning to aspire to this kind of leadership. Then we trust that you'll do that work in them, that there will be that inward and that outward desire to serve you. We thank you, we love you, we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.